the number of fentanyl overdoses uh, in 2021 has now doubled from 2019. The amount of deaths actually are one death in the U.S. every five minutes, and that's 24-7, 365 days a year, and the, the numbers are, are growing. It's a real serious problem, and it's getting worse. Once you start to decriminalize one particular drug, then there will be voices asking for decriminalization of others. And eventually, where do you stop? Where do you continue to push? Will really get you deeper and deeper into this abyss. If the United States decriminalizes one or several drugs, for example, then it will create a ripple effect, not only for the Americans, but for people throughout the world. And eventually, it will become an international problem, a global problem. And yet the United States is unable to, was never able to regulate and control the, the illegal growth of marijuana when it was still criminalized. It was never able to control anything related to the illegal drug trade. So it got this sort of strange double standard that it expects China to solve a problem in some absolute way that it could never solve itself. And at the same time, blaming China for what is essentially a U.S. social problem. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Today, we are talking about the ongoing opioid crisis in the United States. Joining our discussion are Harvey Zoden, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and former Vice President of ABC TV Network in New York. Dr. Zoden previously served as a diplomat at the United Nations International Narcotics Control Board in Vienna. Victor Gao, chair professor at Suzhou University. And Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, East China Normal University. A warm welcome to you all. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. So American media calls this opioid overdose problem in the country an epidemic. Joseph, I understand you used to work with um, the CDC. So the CDC describes an epidemic as an unexpected increase in the number of disease cases in a specific geographical area. So how accurate is it to name opioid overdoses in the states an epidemic? And how serious is the problem? Well, to begin, we, we often use the word epidemic in a everyday vernacular sense of the word. So uh, very narrowly, we would perhaps question the use of the term. But there was a trend in the CDC uh, starting in the 1990s to start looking at various causes of death that are not necessarily caused by, by a disease or something that we would traditionally think of as a disease. For example, very controversially, the CDC began to look at deaths related to gun violence as having an epidemic quality. And uh, of course, that drew a lot of heat from gun rights groups who were worried that it would undercut their right to own or, or, or purchase firearms and require some sort of regulation uh, on the part of the federal government. Uh, and so much as the CDC can sometimes function as a regulatory agency. Uh, that said, the issue with opioids is obviously a lot closer to a health type of problem. We can talk about uh, alcohol addiction or drug addiction as being have, having some medical bases. So, you know, I don't think it's that strange or even inappropriate to use the term epidemic 
Although, you know, what precisely is causing the problem is something that uh, a lot of people aren't clear about. Uh, So, for example, when we have an epidemic like COVID, we know that it's a novel coronavirus that is causing that epidemic. In the case of something like drug addiction or drug overdoses or opioid overdoses in particular, there are a lot of different causes. To simply talk about it in a very simple way often obscures the the greater complexities of what Yeah, uh, it's a very complex issue, obviously. So there are a lot of causes, and we'll dive into that later on in the show. But how serious is the problem right now in the States? Yeah, we know that, uh, for example, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is part of the the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, that uh, in 2020, uh, nearly 92,000 people died from illegal and prescription drugs in the United States, with, with more than 70,000 of those dying from opioids. In 2021, the opioid deaths topped uh, 80,000. I haven't seen numbers for 2022 yet. They might be out soon, uh, or maybe they've already been published, and I just haven't caught them. But it's clearly an escalating problem, one that uh, really, as we know, has a lot of causes, but really escalated during the, the pandemic. Mm. And uh, to Harvey, as a former diplomat at the UN International Narcotics Control Board in Vienna, how concerned are you about this problem in the States, your home country? I'm very concerned about it because I think it is an epidemic. I think uh, in popular way of speaking about epidemics, maybe not the CDC definition, it's certainly an epidemic because the numbers have uh, gone up so much. And they don't call it manufactured death for nothing, because uh, especially fentanyl is manufactured in laboratories as opposed to some other substance like heroin, which is a natural substance that, that gets purified in a lab or in some other setting. So as Joseph pointed out, there have been a hell of a lot of death. And uh, the amount of deaths actually are one death in the U.S. every five minutes, and that's 24-7 365 days a year, and the, the numbers are, are growing. And it's interesting that if you look at the number, the numbers, the demographics of this, the number of uh, fentanyl overdoses uh, in 2021 has now doubled from 2019. And if you look at the demographics, uh, you'd think that uh, it would be Blacks and Hispanics because we think of them, or I do, maybe mistakenly, as a higher population, a proportion of drug population, drug using population, abusing population. But whites account for more than two thirds of the users. And many of them are are current or former members of the US military. And many of them, in fact, suffer from chronic pain as a result of their service. And so they account for a disproportionate high number of the opiate related uh, use and death. And they're twice as likely as the general public to die from an overdose. And actually, to add insult to injury, COVID-19 pandemic worsened the opioid epidemic because of disruptions to supply chains and, of course, addicts to buy drugs that they were less familiar with. And because of social distancing measures, that meant that uh, uh, there were a lot more people around the United States uh, taking drugs alone. It's a real serious problem, and it's getting worse. And if you watch the State of the Union address uh, the other day, you could see how this was a very contentious issue between Democrats and Republicans. And it caused a lot of outcry from the Republicans uh, who were, got really crazy about this issue. 
Can I can I add something to that? Um, sure. To build on what uh, Harvey was saying, one of the things that is remarkable about it is that it is primarily affecting people who are age 35 to 44. But uh, where we're really starting to see some astronomical increases is in the age 65 and over. And so this is not like your normal drug overdose or drug addiction problem, which tends to affect younger people disproportionately. Furthermore, as uh, was mentioned, it's affecting a lot of people, but it's affecting white people in ways that previous drug crises did not. So for example, when we had the, the crack cocaine problem starting in the 1980s that, that accelerated and, and that uh, wreaked uh, incredible havoc on African-American communities, we had a very different government response and policy response. In fact, this is what has led some uh, African-American critics to, uh, today to say, now that white people are being affected by this problem, we're talking about decriminalization or or how we can address it as an epidemic, whereas previously, when it disproportionately affected minorities, the problems associated with the minorities themselves. So there's this, there is this sort of strange history that's going on, but it's also indicative that it, that it is affecting communities across America, unlike some of the drug, major drug problems that we saw in the past. Mm. And Victor, listening to what Joseph and uh, Harvey just said, um, it is a very serious problem in the States. And I understand you just came back from uh, uh, the United States, and you've been um, back and forth between the two countries quite often. What's your observation there? I, I know that you discussed this issue with Harvey like some uh, four or five years ago on uh, another show. So how... Have you observed this problem develop in the States? Thank you very much for having me. I think drug abuse is a major disaster in the United States, whether you call it a pandemic or a epidemic or a disaster, etc. That's a secondary issue. The key point is that this issue uh, is spreading, is escalating, and is affecting more and more people. And drug abuse is not only a disaster for the people directly involved, but also a disaster to the families, to the communities, to the society, and to the whole country of the United States as a whole. And uh, the negative effects of the drug abuse are also long-start, long-lasting. It not only you know lasts for the duration of the drug abuse itself, it actually has long-term after effects on the individuals involved and may even affect their future generations in the family. Therefore, I think it will be absolutely important for the United States as a whole, the whole society, to wake up to this uh, looming disaster, which is increasing over the years. You mentioned uh, I was in the United States. I've noticed that uh, there is a decriminalization process for marijuana. Uh, that's a decision to be made by the United States itself. Uh, however, when you think about uh, marijuana being banned for many years or decades in the United States, and now it is more or less becoming legal to uh, smoke marijuana, and there is increasing amount of abuse of other drugs, including, uh, as Mr. Mahoney said, manufactured drugs, for example, then you are talking about uh, tipping point, whereby the society itself will become more and more victimized. 
by this very serious problem. Now, I would also say, if you look at different parts of this problem, then you always see a very dangerous criminality uh, has this problem. It's not just you know innocent people try to do something exciting or exotic, for example. Uh, there is a huge criminality involved in terms of moving the drugs around, pushing them across the border, and all the money changing hands, for example. And uh, if the United States cannot find a solution to this drug problem, I'm afraid the society eventually will be hollowed out physically, mentally, and uh, the whole nation will lose the focus on doing the right thing for the individuals, for the families, for the societies. In a sense, we need to call this drug abuse problem as a curse on the society at large. And this problem is so big that no single individual will be able to handle it, especially those who try the drugs, who have become addicted to the drugs. And it really would need uh, the societies, the communities, the governments, Congress, for example, of all these entities moving in the same direction to make sure that the American people, especially the younger generations, and increasingly the teenagers or even preteen teens, are not held hostage by this drug problem. I'm very much concerned about this issue, Mm. and I'm afraid it will get worse before it gets better. Right. Before we take a closer look at uh, the solutions, I'd like to share some of my own experience. I remember when I visited Washington a few years ago, I think it's 2019, um, the lady who received our delegation told me that her grandson, who's a teenager at that time, had a big drug addiction problem. And on a Friday evening, um, when we were in downtown D.C., she asked if I smelled anything unusual. I told her I, I smelled nothing. But she said air was inundated with the smell of uh, marijuana. And it seems um, marijuana is allowed or can be consumed without any restrictions on Fridays. And, and she said she was very much concerned about the problem in the States. And um, I think marijuana uh, was once officially outlawed in the States for any use, right? H- how did the U.S. get to this this situation? I guess... Um, Harvey, you might um, be able to bring us through this whole process, probably. Okay, well, it's still an unfolding or unraveling story, I guess you could say. Mm. So, yeah, marijuana, for many years, a lot of people have wanted to decriminalize marijuana because they claim that as opposed to being harmful, that it's actually helpful, that mellows people out and it has certain calming effects, uh, especially uh, in use, let's say, if you have a lot of pain or uh, cancer, that it really helps uh, work and that there are a few side effects. The other side, the war on drugs side, is that marijuana is a gateway drug. And that means that if you take marijuana, you're going to be bumping down a slippery slope into using cocaine which is a controlled substance and which is much more serious and much more dangerous and other drugs like uh, heroin and uh, other opiates like uh, fentanyl, which is a manufactured uh, drug. And so that's basically been the situation for the last few years. The marijuana uh, situation is even more complex because states have been decriminalizing it, but it's still a criminal offense on the federal level. It's a quirk of our 
federal system in the balance between the national and the state and local governments. And so this is a problem that needs to be addressed one way or the other. We're not doing a good job on drugs, I'm afraid. And uh, I think the things that we've been talking about, especially with fentanyl and all the number of deaths and how, uh, how deadly it is, we're, we're going from bad to worse. Right. Um, Joseph, uh, I, I think when the U.S. government launched this war on drugs um, in early 1970s, you were still a, a baby, right? I'm not sure if you have any idea what, what has happened over the past 50 years and what has contributed most to uh, the situation nowadays. Well, I'm 52, and the drug war was launched in 71, so I was definitely a young one at that time. <laughs> but uh, I do have a clear understanding of, of the history, uh, and I think it's important to, to understand it in, in terms of, uh, you know, th there's the whole history, but then there are also different parts of it. So according to a University of Pennsylvania study as of 2021, which was the 50th anniversary of, of the drug war, uh, the U.S. had spent an estimated uh, $1 trillion dollars on the drug war. And unfortunately, a lot of this was oriented towards criminalization and trying to control uh, supply, trying to criminalize users, and certainly criminalize those who, who produce and traffic. Instead of trying to get to the, the core issue of why people abuse drugs and solving it from that level, it's, it's always been trying to, to deal with it as an externality. And that has never worked. It didn't work with previous attempts to restrict and control substances, as, as we saw with uh, prohibition, what we call the prohibition period in, in American history, with regard to alcohol production and consumption. And um, it certainly hasn't happened with, with drugs. And in fact, there are a number of reasons why marijuana has been decriminalized. On, on the one hand, to speak to what Harvey was talking about, you, you've had this movement to talk about the, the benefits of marijuana. But I think it's really the, the reason why we saw governments moving to decriminalize it is because everything that they had done to try to restrict it had, had failed. And instead they thought, okay, well, having criminalized it has only made bigger problems. So why not uh, legalize it so we can at least earn some tax revenues on it and get rid of some of the problems associated with criminalization? Most studies indicate that marijuana is not a gateway drug, although there are more and more studies being published now that show that um, we have seen a, a significant increase in marijuana use and abuse in the United States since it was decriminalized and that this is causing other problems. But that's a different story. You know, the, 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 the drug culture in the United States really became something that became part of the public consciousness in the, in the 1960s. And that's where we began to see uh, the production of synthetic drugs like LSD, among others, uh, as well as the popularization of um, sort of the mass popularization of both narcotics and, and drugs like um, marijuana, as well as uh, mushrooms. Uh, there, there's a type of mushroom that you can eat that causes a psychedelic experience. But where we really begin to see things change is in the 1980s with the problem of crack cocaine. And this is where we really begin to see the criminalization. This is where we begin to see a huge percentage of uh, the African-American population being affected, uh, being incarcerated. And one of the things that we that we know is that illegal drug use, not just its sale at the local level, but its use correlates closely with poverty and a lack of opportunity. And we know that the problem with opioids, which is now a problem that is affecting all races in the United States, uh, that this started in the mid-1990s 
when Purdue Pharma, using fake data, convinced the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, that it was a safe drug, that it wasn't uh, uh, addictive. And then we began to have all these uh, other companies that began to produce these opioids and then push them through doctors who then push them to their patients. And this is what triggered increasing uh, addictions. Uh, in Purdue Pharma's case, it was the, the brand name OxyContin. That's where the problem really begins. And, and then it gets followed up with uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry uh, lobbying members of Congress to prevent legislation and oversight of these drugs once they got into the market. But then the next big problem comes in 2008, the, the U.S. instigated global financial crisis, where a lot of people, my generation initially, lost their jobs. And uh, most people in the United States, their health insurance is tied to their employment. And as a lot of people began to lose their jobs and lose access to their health insurance, they were no longer able to get access to uh, affordable prescription drugs or health care for treating chronic pain or other problems. And so um, this plus the depression associated with uh, having lost their job, a lot of them you know, were facing. The, we, we also saw a spike in suicides in my generation. But um, uh, this what increased um, uh, people using opioids as a way of self-medicating or dealing with depression. And then it, it keeps developing. That's the second wave. And then, you know, there's a third wave where we begin to have new synthetics like fentanyl coming into the equation and then issues like the huge catastrophic response, the U.S.'s catastrophic response to the pandemic, which created a tremendous upsurge in alcohol and drug abuse, as well as suicides in 2020, which has further fueled this crisis to new levels. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are talking about the ongoing opioid crisis in the United States. Maybe we go back a, a little bit um, to this uh, legalization of um, certain drugs. Um, Harvey, you were with this uh, UN agency, this UN International Narcotics uh, Control Yeah, it's an agency. Board. Then uh-huh. the, the legalization of marijuana is actually uh, going against this, uh, the UN Drug Control Treaties, right? So well, why d- does the country well, have to act yeah, in, in contradiction to, to internationally recognized rules while, you know, actually causing some harms to its own people? The, the UN system gives a lot of flexibility to countries. And in the case of the agency that I worked for, they try to monitor the drug situation. Their charge was to monitor the drug situation to see what drug production was legal and what was illegal. So if you think about poppies, for instance, and uh, opioids, uh, that's where they did a lot of work and they, uh, they tracked it and they could see where uh, abuses were happening, where illegal drugs were being grown, processed, and and so on. But then you look at other treaties, and you're right, there's different schedules of drugs, and they're treated differently. But I think uh, marijuana is one of those drugs that's not as serious as the others. And these things change over time. You you take a product like Coca-Cola, where did the name come from? Coca, coca is coca leaves is what uh, cocaine is made from. And the original Coca-Cola had cocaine in it as an ingredient. I'm sure some people would like to see that again. And it would probably boost the sales of the product, but it's not going to 
happen anytime soon. But uh, the short answer to your question that different kinds of drugs are treated differently, and marijuana is not treated um, as seriously by most countries as is some of the opioids and the, the other drugs that we're talking about. Mm, since uh, Joseph mentioned the difference between uh, China's and the U.S. systems, or it, it's really hard to imagine that um, health policy could be changed just because some uh, big pharmaceuticals are, are lobbying lawmakers. And, uh, you know, for people of, of Asian countries, especially those in China, Chinese people who suffered, a, you know, a century of um, humiliation due to um, weakened national strength, especially after the war launched by Britain to push its opium sales in China. It's really, you know, hard to understand such logic behind legalizing, you know, the, the recreational use of any narcotics, including marijuana or, or even, as um, Victor mentioned, de decriminalizing possession of some hard drugs. So... Gosh, if I can, if I can uh, jump in again sure. on, on that. I don't think it's so hard to envision it. Because I think that you have a situation where this, uh, as Joseph mentioned, a trillion dollars spent on this the war on drugs. And look at the results. It worked at first, but it's not working anymore. So i am changed my opinion, actually. And I think for some drugs, not all, that we should try a system where drugs are controlled but dispensed legally like marijuana. Maybe if it involves other drugs, it has to be uh, dispensed more carefully and maybe consumed in a, a controlled environment. But wouldn't it be better if these were controlled by the government, administered by the government, and so that uh, people who sell them would pay taxes to the government, not to Mexican and Colombian and other drug cartels. And if you were a drug addict, wouldn't you like to know that you could go to one of these places and be sure that the product that you were consuming was safe? Because right now, fentanyl is so dangerous. If you touch pure fentanyl, you could die. And if you buy some pill or some powder on the street and the pusher tells you it's X and he lies and, or doesn't know, and that fentanyl is the ingredient of what you're taking, you can die. So it's, it's much better if you could consume it in a place that's paying taxes where it's safe. No, but the problem, the, the, the ultimate problem is, is not about whether the drugs are safe. It's about whether people can you know, quit the addiction, and it's about the, the health of the whole nation. I, I don't know uh, what Victor would say here. I need to make a point. First, allow the Americans to make a decision about how to manage and control drugs for the Americans in their own country. All right. Different countries do differ a great deal, and it is very conceptually confusing to use one country's ideas or conceptions of drugs or drug abuses and try to uh, push that onto another country because the countries uh, may be completely different. I think from the Chinese perspective, we just need to do whatever we think is the right for these drug controls to protect the Chinese people. And I'm sympathetic with people like Harvey and the American people of all kinds to try to figure out what's the best for them to control drugs for the American people. I personally am worried about two things, about the decriminalization of drugs in the United States. One is there must be a slippery slope 
once you start to decriminalize one particular drug, then there will be voices asking for decriminalization of others. And eventually, where do you stop? Where do you continue to push? Will really get you deeper and deeper into this abyss. Secondly, the United States do not live in an island isolated from the rest of the world. But there is a tremendous amount of exchange of people of all kinds from all corners of the world to the United States. Therefore, if the United States decriminalizes one or several drugs, for example, then it will create a ripple effect, not only for the Americans, but for people throughout the world. And eventually, again, it will become an international problem, a global problem. So I am very much confused about this drug problem because my own ideas for the challenges China has faced are very different from many people I know personally in the United States. Eventually, I give up worrying about the American problem because I firmly believe the Americans have full right to make their own decision about their drugs as they have done with their guns. But they need to be responsible for the consequences. And I worry about a continuing and more and more increasing and ever-exploding crisis for the long-term health conditions of the American people in general, as well as those affected by these drug abusers of all kinds, and eventually the whole nation will suffer. I say this because in China, we suffer a very similar incident. You know, there was a first opium war in 1840, and there was a country which had the guts to use guns to force China to open the door to buy drugs, for example. It's a tragedy for the Chinese people. And eventually, I would say at least one generation, if not two generations of the Chinese people were lost because the drugs flooded the whole country. And more and more people, including people in all walks of, of lives, of all age groups throughout China, were addicted to the opium addiction. And I think uh, the hollowing out of China, the hollowing out of the spirit of the Chinese people, and eventually the Chinese nation became weaker, unable to really handle many challenges that we actually faced with, for example, was the very tragic consequences of the drugs being forced into China by the British gunboats. And uh, I actually very much uh, hate to think about the years and decades in China after 1840, after the first opium war, and the British and the French had the guns to fight the second opium war in the 1860s, for example. And eventually they controlled uh, many key parts of China, including, for example, the China's customs, etc., etc. I just hope the Americans will know what's the consequence if the whole country cannot really away from these drug abuses. And how you define drugs, illegal drugs, or legalized drugs, etc., that's another issue. But the key point is that if any nation in the world cannot save their people from drug abuse, there will be long-lasting consequences for the whole nation. Yes, that's what I'm saying. If you uh, legalize, I'm not saying every or oh, all drugs, if you legalize things like marijuana or heroin or crack cocaine, wouldn't you provide more access to average people? And wouldn't that lead to bigger problems, um, Harvey? Might. And there's a lot of truth in what Victor had said. 
but it seems to me that you can't equate all drugs because all drugs are different. And if you look at the international treaties and Mm. at domestic uh, legislation, you have different categories. So, yeah, you might not want to legalize all, but you might want to legalize some. And you might want to legalize the the conditions under which they're uh, consumed, let's say, because the drug war has been a failure. Because you look at the situation now, and it's an international situation, it's not a domestic situation, where uh, drugs are coming in or drug ingredients are coming in from multiple countries. We failed because the profit motive is so strong that people who do these kinds of businesses, let's call them businesses, are so greedy and so hepped up on, you know, this is capitalism at its worst, let's say. The pharma companies uh, are bad because they lied, as that was pointed out, uh, in trying to get these drugs legalized and over-prescribed. But also, when you have these drug dealers who seem to be ahead of the game, always one step ahead of the game, you have a big problem. And they're going to find a way to get through the loopholes, whether it involves bribing people killing people, better marketing, or whatever. This is a global problem. And I think instead of countries now fighting each other like America and China, we shouldn't be talking about balloons. We should be talking more about this situation because it affects the population of China, it affects the population of America, it affects the population of so many countries, and we could do a hell of a lot working together. But fighting... And because we've been fighting, the cooperation between U.S. and China is less than it was a couple years ago when Victor and I were on dialogue talking about this. The cooperation is less, so the problem is increased. It's time to get back to solving the world's problems, and we're not doing that. And that's why I'm pessimistic. I'm an optimist, but now I'm pessimistic. Yeah, but uh, one of the things here, though, mm -hmm. is we need to avoid conflating narratives and problems. On the one hand, we have a very specific problem associated with opioids. And this is, I think, a very separate issue in some respects. And I think this is the point that Harvey's tried to make with respect to the legalization of marijuana. The opioid problem is a very specific problem. I've already talked about where that problem came from. But it should be absolutely clear that the real underlying problem is the fact that since the the 1980s, and this has been proven by study after study, that we have seen the erosion of the middle class and the working class in the United States, from one crisis to the next. And this is what has really driven demand. Where you have demand for a product in a global economy, that global economy will find ways to satisfy that demand. So as demand for drugs, for getting high, for escaping, has increased as more and more people have found their lives unbearable or in pain, and not just because they're, they're being tricked by pharmaceutical companies, but because of lots of other reasons, right? In other words, it's really the hollowing out of American citizens since the 1980s and, and onward up to the present. That's the first issue. The second issue is I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago. This is when I was stuck in the United States during the, the pandemic, and I was in Washington. Uh, you noted uh, being asked if you smelled anything. Uh, everywhere I went with my children uh, in Washington, we smelled marijuana. You know, we, we were looking at, at reports then circulating in the news that, that we had these historic highs of drug and alcohol abuse due to the, due to the pandemic, people being out of work, uh, people being depressed and anxious. Um, 
And uh, I asked the question in this article, what percentage of the U.S. population is sober right now? And this was a very interesting question for me to consider because, uh, and I know this is a little dramatic, but there's a, a very interesting book by Norman Oler that was published a few years ago called Blitz, Drugs in the Third Reich. And it talks about how a big part of German society was hooked on opioids and cocaine. And this, this was in part because it was unregulated, but also because so many people had suffered in World War One. We know Germany w- was terribly defeated and, and knocked back as a result of that conflict. But there are uh, many reports that that at key junctures, Hitler himself was high on drugs. And and Oler's argument is that this is what fuels some of the inhumanity that we see associated with that regime against the Jews, but also against other countries. But in addition to this, it also led to bad decision-making, right? Uh, so uh, poor prosecution of the war. I, I linked this to uh, what Victor was talking about with the hollowing out of Chinese society with the opium addiction after the opium wars. I also linked it to another civilizational collapse, the Mayans. We're not entirely sure why they, why they collapsed, but the leading theory is that there was climate change that affected their intense agricultural production and their priests, who were also their, their leaders, began to use more hallucinogenic drugs uh, to commune with the spirits to try to figure out how they could solve these problems, and it led to a breakdown in governance. So the question that I have is, you know, to what extent are we seeing now this, this American society that is literally losing its mind, that is unable to think clearly because it's either drunk or high or engaging in very serious uh, drugs like meth or uh, the opioids, which continue to advance. That's a concern for the whole world. In other words, because we, we see what's happened before with either civilizational collapse or with civilizations that lose touch with reason reality and become aggressive towards others. And of course, we do have the United States becoming aggressive, aggressive towards others, including China and including trying to blame China for this, in part, for this opioid problem. One of the things that, that happened during the State of the Union uh, speech the other night is Biden mentioned this problem which drew some applause. But uh, Republicans who fell in love with, with Trump's wall with Mexico, Republicans believe that the main problem is that Biden hasn't been hard enough on China and that Biden has been soft on the Mexican border. One of the things that the Republicans never talk about is how an estimated 200,000 U.S. guns flow illegally from the U.S. into Mexico to the cartels so the cartels can fight the Mexican government to get the drugs and the United States, right? There are all these complex web of factors where this type of problem, where we see a vulnerable population, an increasingly vulnerable population, has a destabilizing effect. I mean, if you, if you know the history of Mexico, if you know how the cartels, which do all their business by selling illegal drugs in the United States, how this has destroyed the northern part of Mexico and compromised the governance of the, of the nation as a whole. In other words, or if you go and look at what happened in Colombia or, or other areas in, in Peru, where then the U.S. military starts using this as excuses to go in and support uh, dictatorships and have interdictions and fight against uh, uh, insurgencies that are trying to, to, in some cases, foster social justice. It becomes a global problem that can have uh, these tremendous spillover effects for, for everyone. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are talking about the ongoing opioid crisis in the United States. Yeah, that's what I'm going to ask. If 
uh, what the U.S. is doing is just a scapegoating, or it's just blame its own problems on others, such as, um, as you mentioned, blaming this whole thing or the fentanyl um, overdoses on on China. How can the two countries achieve cooperation mentioned by Harvey? Uh, how they can build up this trust between each other and solve or embark on a the right track towards solving this problem? Harvey? I, I have an answer. Uh, all right. Uh, okay. Well, it's like I said, and then Joseph can give his answer. It's like I said, we have to work together. United States and China, for example, worked together a few years ago uh, to make sure that less of the fentanyl and less of the ingredients, which are called precursor ingredients, were exported from China. And it had a very good result, not perfect, but a very good result. But as a consequence of our Cold War 2.0, there isn't as much cooperation now. So the answer is more cooperation on basics and uh, less uh, accusing each other of doing things that are not being done. So we have to address those interests, where those issues where our national interests overlap. And drug abuse is certainly one of them. And another one is uh, global public health. Another one is the environment. But f- we're not doing a very good job on any of those, I don't think. And Joseph, you were saying? Yeah, we, we know that uh, in 2019, China did prohibit the export of fentanyl and uh, as well as the precursor uh, ingredients. And so far, um, China is the only country that, to, um, to to list all uh, the fentanyl-related substances on a uh, control list, right? But the U.S. hasn't done it. That's right. And so what we saw was, according to the, to the USDEA, a tremendous drop in fentanyl coming from China into the United States. But as Harvey mentioned, it, it was imperfect. But I think part of the problem is that the United States ends up believing its own nonsense. Uh, it, it has this, this perception of the Chinese government as this all-powerful monolith that can simply imposes its will whenever it wants. We know that some people, there are bad people in China, and you know they don't operate in Shanghai or Beijing. They go to the hinterland. They, they go way out somewhere. It's very, very simple to manufacture uh, the chemicals associated with, with fentanyl, in part because the, the amount of product that you need, it's so potent that you don't have to manufacture that much. So you can have very small operations hidden in places, and you don't have to mail big packages. It's not like you know, shipping cocaine where you have to ship like a kilo or 10 kilos or 100 kilos. You can ship little tiny packages and you can hide these and things. So, you know, we had um, we had this, this these new regulations and these new enforcements and some bad guys, they were able to get around this in some ways. Uh, but there's this idea that, that China has to be able to completely stop this problem and that it, that it can because it's, you know, this all-powerful government that can do whatever it wants. And yet the United States is unable to, was never able to regulate, uh, control the, 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 the illegal growth of marijuana when it was still criminalized. It was never able to control anything related to the illegal drug trade. So it's got this sort of strange double standard that it expects China to solve a problem in some absolute way that it could never solve itself. And at the same time, blaming China for what is essentially a U.S. social problem. Yeah. But the key point is, 
China did respond and it did drop off. The problem that we're having now is, of course, that we're not seeing the same level of cooperation, but also because the problem is not limited to fentanyl, right? And as there's a new class of drugs that's now emerging, a new type of opioid. And so when China makes this illegal, they say, okay, these particular chemicals and these products are now illegal. That's the way your legal system has to work. You can't just say, okay, everything is now illegal. So now these um, illegal drug producers, they've come up with new chemicals, new compounds that will get you just as high or, or worse, but are no longer, that aren't on the list of prohibitions. And so this is always going to be a problem. You, you don't solve the problem by stopping these things. That has never worked. What you have to do is change the conditions of society that are creating uh, this, this overwhelming need or desire for people to escape from reality, right? You can lose your mind to many different drugs, alcohol, whatever the, the case may be. So it, it's not narrowly an opioid problem. It's not narrowly a fentanyl problem. It's a social problem. Mm. You're talking about the uh, cooperation between the U.S. and China, but given the fact that the U.S. has added the, the Chinese uh, Ministry of Public Security's Physical Evidence Identification Center and National Drug Laboratory, the two key institutes in fighting illegal drugs to its uh, sanctions list. So, Harvey, how can the two sides have a smooth cooperation is just beyond me. Do you have any solution there? Like I said before, when you watch this, if watch the State of the Union address, and you could see how divided the country is, and how disrespectful the Republicans were, and how crazy the Republicans were, it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to do much that's rational at the moment. I hope that calmer minds will prevail. I don't see it happening right away, but I do think. That uh, it's one thing to keep yelling about balloons and other things that score political points in America, but it's not so easy to do the hard work that needs to be done in the areas where our national interests overlap. Like I said before,、uh, this is one of them. Environment is another one. Global public health is another one. Global poverty is another. So we need to change the conversation. But in America, the only issue. That people seem to be able to agree upon is not about marijuana, or fentanyl, or any of that. It's about demonizing China, and this is not going anywhere good. And we need to get with the program if we're going to have an environment that、uh, can support human life and other life. And we need to have、uh, cooperation if we're not going to have a war in the next couple years or at some point. But that's where we're headed if we don't get serious about what's important and prioritize what's important.、Mm. And then, Victor, from a Chinese perspective, do you think the problem can be solved? Now, first of all, first of all, from the Chinese perspective, there is only one China-U.S. relations, and China refuses to compartmentalize China-U.S. relations into pigeonholes. And、uh, if the United States really wants to pursue an anti-China hostility against China, antagonism against China, then China need to respond in the same color and shape. And、uh, it is really absurd to see that.、Um, Secretary of Treasury Yellen wants China to buy more treasuries to support、uh, beefing up the dollar, for example. Whereas the Secretary of Defense is talking about other things, and then they went to the extreme of shooting down another IB 
not an ICBM, but a balloon, for example. And then uh, it is really entertaining to see the Secretary of State uh, Blinken uh, accusing China of violating U.S. sovereignty and territorial integrity uh, at a time when China has again and again and again uh, accused the United States of violating China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. So I think uh, China wants to do the right thing. China wants to promote the uh, constructive development of China-U.S. relations, but it really takes two to tango. You cannot just China dancing solo, and the United States is doing all kinds of funny things, many of which are conflicted, for example, and sometimes they do this to confuse China, to discover the weaknesses in China's line of defense. Now, on the drug abuse situation, I do think international cooperation is a must. Now, I would say when the United States asks China's help or even demanding China's uh, assistance in fighting against fentanyl, for example, on the one hand, I fully understand why they do this. But on the other side, it really confuses me because the United States need to come up with a unified policy about China. And Washington need to realize that uh, antagonism against China is not going to help the United States. There are deeply rooted domestic problems that Washington really need to rally the whole people in the United States to solve, rather than blaming China, accusing China as if that will be the panacea to solve the Americans' problems. I do believe between China and the United States, we need wisdom and courage and vision to make sure that these two countries will get along with each other despite of the differences between themselves. And I also truly believe that China and the United States should not compete with each other. U.S. is very different from China. China is absolutely different from the United States. We do our things. We play our ping pong. The Americans do their things in their way, play their basketball, for example. We are not competing. If China wants to compete basketball with the Americans, we will fail. If the Americans want to compete with China in um, table tennis, they will fail. So I think we need to be philosophical well, uh, with China and the United States. And by the end of the day, no one should believe that a war will be a complete win for one against a complete defeat of the other. It's completely crazy. So I do hope China and the United States will cooperate absolutely unconditionally on fighting against drugs. And I just hope the Americans will realize that you cannot be highly selective of what you really need Chinese cooperation. And you give China the impression that Washington is completely anti-China, a clique bent upon pushing China down to the ground as if there will be no consequences. Mm, indeed. And the last question to all of you, the lessons we can learn maybe from the U.S. campaign against narcotics, especially when in China we also are facing this uh, problem of uh, narcotics abuse here in this country. Maybe we start from um, Victor. I personally believe drug abuse of all kinds is a curse for those people who abuse drugs, their families, their communities, their country, and the civilization they came from. And given the seriousness of the drug abuse throughout the world now, I do believe that international cooperation is an absolutely must. However, I think we also need 
to depend upon science and technology and education and really caring for the people. It is obscene to see some people believe that if people want to abuse drugs, that's their problem. If they want to die, that's their problem. No, I think society has its own responsibility to be mobilized, to urge everyone in the society to do the right thing and to prevent people from doing curses to themselves and to their families and to their communities. It's easier said than done. And from the Chinese perspective, I'm completely confused about the drug abuse problem getting more and more serious in the United States. And there doesn't seem to be a handle that the Americans can put their hands on to solve this problem. I'm afraid it will get worse and the Americans for many generations to come will suffer the consequences. Joseph? Yeah, several years ago, uh, I looked at uh, a lot of the data that was available with uh, the Ministry of Health in China on what we were seeing with the rising alcohol abuse problem in China um, in, in middle schools. And there, it seemed to uh, be correlated with the increasing number of hours that children were being required to spend in school and after school programs. Now, we know that the government has made some reforms to, to lower that burden on children. We also know that a lot of, according to the studies, that a lot of the children were being introduced to alcohol by their parents as a way to help them deal with the stresses associated with too much education and so forth and so on. So I would like to think that this kind of solution where we're reforming the education system to, to try to decrease the burden on young people, but also things like poverty alleviation, uh, eliminating extreme poverty, bringing more development to more people. These are, are trying to raise up people and improve their lives. And you know, once you're moving along in a productive way, once you're moving along in a happy way, once you have access, good access to healthcare, you don't have the same incentive to escape or to dull your senses. Um, I think that's the solution. I think that's the path that China's on in terms of building socialism. And I think that's precisely the path that the U.S. isn't taking. Last but not least, uh, our former diplomat at the United Nations International Nar Narcotics Control Board in Vienna, Harvey. Well, I think that Victor and Joseph have been much more eloquent than I could be. And they basically said it all. Uh, we have to focus on the program. Uh, we have to be people-oriented, and uh, we have to solve the problems of society, not only on a national basis, but on an international basis, uh, if we're going to have a, a life worth living. So this is just one of the symptoms, the, the drug abuse. So good luck to us all. Otherwise, we're not going to be here for very long. As for me, I, I think a lesson I draw from this uh, is uh, be more mature, face the reality, and act more responsibly and rationally and stop scapegoating whenever there is a problem should be the first action that a competent politician or lawmaker or a government takes um, towards finding the right solution. And with that, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Harvey Zodin, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and former Vice President of ABC TV Network in New York. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, and Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, for sharing your insights with us. Please feel free to leave a review or comment for us, and subscribe to The Chat Lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us.
what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We'll see you there.